1 Samuel chapter 26, beginning to read at verse 13. Now David went over to the other side and stood on the top of a hill afar off, a great distance being between them. And David called out to the people and to Abner, the son of Ner, saying, Do you not answer, Abner? Then Abner answered and said, Who are you, calling out to the king? So David said to Abner, Are you not a man? And who is like you in Israel? Why then have you not guarded your lord the king? For one of the people came in to destroy your lord the king. This thing that you have done is not good. As the Lord lives, you deserve to die because you have not guarded your master, the Lord's anointed. And now see where the king's spear is and the jug of water that was by, by his head. Then Saul knew David's voice and said, Is that your voice, my son David? David said, It is my voice, my lord, O king. And he said, Why does my lord thus pursue his servant? For what have I done? Or what evil is in my hand? Now therefore, please, let my lord the king hear the words of his servant. If the Lord has stirred you up against me, let him accept an offering. But if it is the children of men, may they be cursed before the Lord. For they have driven me out this day from sharing in the inheritance of the Lord, saying, Go, serve other gods. So now do not let my blood fall to the earth before the face of the Lord. For the king of Israel has come out to seek a flea, as when one hunts a partridge in the mountains. Then Saul said, I have sinned. Return, my son David, for I will harm you no more, because my life was precious in your eyes this day. Indeed, I have played the fool and erred exceedingly. And David answered and said, Here is the king's spear. Let one of the young men come over and get it. May the Lord repay every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord delivered you into my hand today, but I would not stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed. And indeed, as your life was valued much this day in my eyes, so let my life be valued much in the eyes of the Lord, and let him deliver me out of all tribulation. Then Saul said to David, May you be blessed, my son David. You shall both do great things and also still prevail. So David went on his way, and Saul returned to his place. Father God, we thank you for this, your word, and it is our glory to continue to worship you as we hear instruction from it. We pray that you would sanctify us as your people, that you would keep me from error and enable me to faithfully preach your word. We love you and we bless you, and we commit this time to you. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, in verse 21, we have an amazing statement made by Saul. He says, I have played the fool and erred exceedingly. Now, it shouldn't be amazing for anybody who's indwelt by the Spirit of God because this is what God calls us to, is to have a life that is open like that. But for Saul, this really was a rare moment of honesty. And his statement is absolutely true. He had played the fool by breaking many of his promises. You do that enough times, and eventually you're not going to get anybody to trust you. Uh, he had played the fool by surrounding himself with people who were very self-serving, and he had to pretty much buy uh, their uh, loyalty. And he was chasing away the very man who loved him and had been loyal to him. 
uh, he had played the fool by not seeing who the real enemy was. I don't know how many times I've told married partners, you're not each other's enemy. You know, Satan's your enemy. He's trying to get in here and divide you and conquer. You need to be focusing your attention on him. But how many times do we allow pride to make us play the fool in the same way? Saul had played the fool by making himself the chief cause instead of seeing God as the chief cause. He had played the fool by alienating virtually everybody in his family. He had played the fool uh, with his temper, his revenge, his paranoia. He had played the fool by killing off all of the pastors and their families in the city of Noth. In fact, there were so many different ways in which he had played the fool that it'd be very easy for us to be sympathetic with Abishai, who offered to kill Saul in verse 8. Let's just get rid of this problem. But we saw last week that David saw the bigger picture, uh, and he, with self-controlled leadership, made the right decision, even though it was not a very popular decision at the time uh, to make. Well, now we come to David's rebuke of this man who had played the fool. And uh, during the introduction, I want to just analyze, is this a violation of Proverbs chapter 9? Now, in Proverbs 9, uh, the words scoffer and fool are used as synonyms. And in verses 7 through 8, it says this, He who corrects a scoffer gets shame for himself. And he who rebukes a wicked man only harms himself. Do not correct a scoffer lest he hate you. Rebuke a wise man and he will love you. And so those verses seem to indicate that Abishai had the a correct idea. There's no point in rebuking Saul. He's not going to listen. Just look at the past history that he's gone through. A rebuke is going to make him ha hate you the worse. It's going to produce a further harm. Uh, here are a couple of other scriptures that seem to contradict my thesis that I'm going to be presenting to you this morning. Proverbs 15:12. A scoffer does not love one who corrects him, nor will he go to the wise. Proverbs 16.22, understanding is a wellspring of life to him who has it, but the correction of fools is folly. That seems to be saying, don't even try uh, to, you know, to mess around and, and rebuke a fool or a scoffer. But those four verses are only the first half of the equation and it, it's true, there are some people you should just leave alone. Scripture is quite clear on that. Don't bother correcting them. It's uh, not going to do any good. They don't uh, love the truth. They don't care about uh, the truth. And what you're doing by correcting them is giving them ammunition that they're going to shoot right back at you. So he says there's a sense in which you leave those alone. But there are hints in these verses that David was bringing these rebukes not for Saul's sake alone, by this time, I think David was utterly skeptical of Saul's repentance. That's why he stays a long ways away in verse 13, where nobody can capture him. And that's why in verse 25, even though Saul has invited him, come on back, uh, I'm not going to harm you, David says, no thanks, uh, I think I'm going to uh, stay away here, because he knows that Saul has not changed. Saul is still a, a, a fool, and uh, he is obeying the sentiment of those verses that I've just read uh, from Proverbs. Uh, no illusion that he's going to change. Instead, what I believe is going on here is that David is setting up a bold witness to all 3,000 soldiers 
uh, to the fact that they are killing an innocent man. They're engaged in a crime. He was setting the stage for the work that he was going to be engaged in in the next chapters after he leaves Israel, where he goes in these forays and he brings these gifts and he's trying to uh, win the hearts of uh, the nobles in the land of Israel. So this was a very calculated rebuke that was similar to some admonitions that are given later on in Proverbs, and I'll read you a couple of those admonitions. Proverbs 19, verse 25. Strike a scoffer, and the simple will become wary. Now, that's not a contradiction. He's not saying that the scoffer will become wary. The scoffer does not change in this verse. Uh, He's still a scoffer. It says, strike a scoffer, and the simple will become wary. So as those 3,000 soldiers witness this striking, as it were, this rebuke of the fool, of the scoffer, they realize all of a sudden what is going on, the foolishness of this fool, and they are not as much influenced. His influence is diminished. Here's another passage. Proverbs 26, verse 4. Do not answer a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him. So that's the first half of the equation. Second half of the equation is given in the next verse. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. So there is a place for answering a fool. Uh, We can't just take those scriptures totally out of context. This passage indicates that as you correct a scoffer, the utter irrationality of his position uh, is exposed And a valuable thing is achieved. Others now recognize him to be a fool. They begin to realize he doesn't have a leg to stand on. And so what David is doing in this chapter is really a very effective apologetic. Once and for all, he has demolished the credibility of King Saul. And even Saul admits he's a fool, that he has erred exceedingly. So David has demonstrated to all of these soldiers his innocence, his courage, his integrity, even his kingly manner. And uh, it was definitely um, not a bad thing any more than Herod's rebuke. I mean, uh, John the Baptist's rebuke of Herod uh, was a bad thing. So what I want to do this morning, I want to look at David, how he effectively rebukes a fool. First thing that he does is to cover his tracks and to be cautious. He knows there is danger in rebuking a fool. This is in verse 13. Now David went over to the other side and stood on the top of a hill afar off, a great distance being between them. Okay, Uh, he made sure that none of the soldiers would be able to capture him or any of the other soldiers. He's not stupid. It was precisely because of the dangers of rebuking a fool that he is being cautious. But at the same time, David realizes, he sees the big picture as a leader should, And he realizes there could be good outcomes from this rebuke, including maybe a temporary stay of Saul's madness, but certainly winning the affections of these people. I've got to tell you a story about uh, Abraham Lincoln, since you guys are all fans of him. (laughs) Um, This story comes from early on in his uh, career as a a lawyer. There was a, a guy who was extremely bitter against uh, one of his neighbors. His neighbor had uh, borrowed $2.50 from him and had become impoverished and could not pay it back. And this guy wanted to bring a lawsuit against against him. Just to give you a little bit of perspective, uh, even with the Federal Reserve's uh, very conservative estimates of what inflation has has happened, 
$2.50 is $69.60 in, in today's uh, figures. Still not a, a very big sum of money. And so Abraham Lincoln tried to talk him out of this lawsuit, but this guy was bent on revenge. I want you to take on this case. And he said, okay, I'll take on the case. And uh, the fee will be $10. And uh, so the guy gave him the $10. Abraham Lincoln walked over to the defendant, gave him half the money, explained uh, that all he needs to do is uh, say that he's guilty and uh, pay $2.50. So the defendant is $2.50 ahead. Abraham Lincoln's $5 ahead without doing any work whatsoever. And the weird thing about it was that the plaintiff was happy about this because he had forced this guy to you know, admit that he was guilty. Whatever. <laughs> but um, it, it does show some of the irrationality of what uh, Saul was doing. Uh, now, I give that story because it, I think it illustrates that ignoring fools is not always necessary. We can benefit and others can benefit from our interactions with them. But as those pro Proverbs commanded, we should be cautious in our dealings with spiritual fools, just as David was. Now, one of the cautions that he took is he wanted to make sure that there were plenty of witnesses to what he was going to be doing. Verse 14, and David called out to the people, and I want you to notice here he's calling to the people, it's not just to Abner, he called out to the people and to Abner, the son of Ner, saying, do you not answer, Abner? Then Abner answered and said, who are you calling out to the king? Now, Abner knows whoever it is that's doing this calling, he must not have recognized David's voice, is doing it for the benefit of the king. And so it's clear in this passage that the king, Abner, and all of the people are in view. David wants to make sure that there are plenty of witnesses, and there is a good reason for it. Saul has lied so many times in the past, he can't trust just a private dialogue between him and Saul. Uh, he is covering his tracks. The third thing that we see is that David used an apologetic tactic of recognizing the good that was in Abner and that everybody else recognized in Abner and then turning that around and using it to demonstrate Abner's sin. Now take a look at verse 15. So David said to Abner, Are you not a man? And who is like you in Israel? Now that, that's a compliment. You're the man. Abner, you're the greatest guy in Israel. Uh, there wasn't anybody to compare to you, which means you got a higher responsibility than anybody else. And now he turns it against him in these next words. And what he does is he wants to make sure Abner doesn't even engage in any debate with him. He's kind of taking the wind out of his sails because these next words are going to make King Saul extremely upset, mad at Abner. Okay, he's pitting the two there against each other. So he's not going to be arguing with David. So he goes on to say, Why then have you not guarded your lord the king? For one of the people came in to destroy your lord the king. This thing that you have done is not good. As the Lord lives, you deserve to die. And that was a reference to their martial law that if you fell asleep on guard, it could be a capital crime. You deserve to die because you have not guarded your master, the Lord's anointed. And now see where the king's spear is and the jug of water that was by his head. So he's in the moonlight up on the top of that hill waving these objects so that Saul and everybody else could see he really does uh, have them. Now that gets Saul's attention, certainly gets Abner's attention, but I think it gets the attention of everybody because everybody's in Dutch. I mean, they're really in trouble uh, for not having, for having fallen asleep on, on guard. They are guilty 
of not guarding the king's life as David has guarded the king's life. So David clearly demonstrates that he has been looking after the king's welfare more than Abner, more than any of these other men have done. And this makes Saul more predisposed to listen to David. So let's look at how David now rebukes the fool. Rather than fiercely lashing out at Saul and the idiocy of his policies, and they were idiotic policies, we find no verbal dissonance between David's assertions that he was loyal and the way in which he rebuked them. Take a look at verse 17. Then Saul knew David's voice and said, Is that your voice, my son David? David said, It is my voice, my Lord, O King. And in being so respectful, David stands as a rebuke uh, to us. At least he stands as a rebuke uh, to me. Uh, we've already seen when he says here, you are, you know, uh, my Lord, you are king. Uh, there is some disconnect in people's minds because God has already said that Saul was disqualified from being king de jure. De jure means legally. But God says he still is king de facto because the people have chosen him. And so David still acknowledges him, gives him respect, even though he's not a de jure king, he's a de facto king. And if David could give this kind of respect during such trying circumstances, I think that we have got to be very, very careful about um, our disrespect to those who are in office even if they're not there de jure, they're just there de facto. They shouldn't be in office. Uh, we should probably be very, very uh, respectful of them as well. Now, you can prove me wrong, but this has been a rebuke to me. First Peter 2.17 says, Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Now, of course, there's a balance here. It doesn't mean that uh, David trusts the king or that David will obey the king by coming into the camp. No way. But David does set a wonderful precedent of caution and respect. But then comes a withering series of questions and statements that uh, expose the bankruptcy of Saul's position. And to me, this is interesting because it shows that respect does not mean you have to agree. Respect is not agreement. It doesn't mean that you can't be opposed to the president or that you can't criticize the president's policies because David's going to be criticizing this king that he's showing politeness to. And we're not going to take a lot of time to look at each statement, but let's take a, a look at uh, verse 18. He begins by asking a question. Why does my Lord thus pursue his servant? Now, by asking a question, he's throwing the ball into Saul's lap. Now, of course, there's no good answer to that question because uh, to those who, are, uh, those who are onlookers here, they begin to realize, you know, David is not the ogre that this propaganda machine has made him out to be. So it doesn't really, they know the why. You know, why are you after me? They know why Saul is after him. But the answer is that Saul has given and his propaganda just do not compute with the actions that David has engaged in right here. David is in effect uh, saying with this question, I've demonstrated today that I'm your servant. I'm looking out for your best interests. I am not uh, dangerous to you. 
and I'm confused as to why you are pursuing me. The next question, for what have I done? Surely you've got a good reason for killing me. You know, why don't you tell your men what that reason is? The next question is, or what evil is in my hand? Saul had probably convinced these people that David was a dangerous terrorist, right? And uh, by sparing Saul's life and taking those two articles, the spear, which symbolized his power, the water jug, which symbolized the life-giving resources, he was showing what an utter lie all of this propaganda had been concerning him. David could have taken the throne at that point. He could have taken Saul's life, which both of those things symbolized, but he did not do so. If he is such a dangerous criminal as Saul makes him out to be, Saul would be dead, is basically what he is saying. And uh, he asks Saul to tell his men even one good reason why he was hunting David. And Saul's inability to give an answer to that question would have been humiliating. Any reason had been given in the propaganda, you know, in the previous uh, uh, days would look utterly ridiculous, would look ludicrous. So he didn't even dare bring up those reasons at this point. Now, as a side note, just in terms of apologetics, I would encourage you guys to think about using questions because, again, this puts the ball into your opponent's court. The use of why and what questions many times can uh, reveal the... um, What's it called? The lack of foundation that people have. Now, if they are very legitimate in their opposition to you, then they'll give you an answer. But the questions themselves carry with it the answer that exposes the bankruptcy of their position. Now, of course, David doesn't do his apologetics rudely. Even though his speech was embarrassing to Saul and it pulled the rug out from under Saul's feet, he does it politely. You know, this is a thing I loved about Gordon Clark. He just sliced and diced you to pieces, you know, in class. But you liked him for it. You know, he'd do it with a smile on his face. But uh, anyway, David's very polite. Verse 19. Now, therefore, please let my Lord, the king, hear the words of his servant. David doesn't have to be mean and ugly and angry you know, when he is confronting Saul, when you're using the gospel gun, you don't have to yell for that gospel to be effective. You know, the power of God's spirits, the one that's going to be doing the convicting anyway. And so in many ways, his words had more impact upon the crowd precisely because David was so self-controlled and so gentle in his spirit. He was polite. Please listen to what I have to say. It's showing that David's a reasonable man. And 1 Peter 3 tells us that such politeness and gentleness needs to always accompany our apologetics. We're not there just to make people embarrassed, and we're not there just to, uh, you know, wipe uh, the mat with them. We're, We're supposed to be gracious. Now, next, David takes the second side of apologetics. And he assumes for a moment that Saul has a legitimate beef, that he has a good reason for pursuing him, and then he disposes of that reason. So this is his strategy. If even the best argument that Saul can give in the upcoming days, and he's probably going to be discussing with his men in the upcoming days some of these things, if even that best argument is not a good argument for killing David, then it it undermines further confrontation. So verse 19 continues with David saying, If the Lord has stirred you up against me, 
let him accept an offering. In other words, if you can show sin in me, let me confess it before the Lord. Let me offer a sacrifice on the altar in in the temple. I'm perfectly willing to confess my sins. Now, that's a very disarming statement. By being willing to have sin exposed in his life, what he does is he takes the whole debate into the realm of God's grace. God's grace demands forgiveness, demands reconciliation when there's been genuine repentance from all true believers. So what is my sin? If it's there, let's deal with it. And I think this is a wonderful way that we can confront those in the body of Christ who are unwilling to forgive us. Uh, when we demonstrate that we're open, we want, show me what my sin is. I I want to be able to repent of it. If you can show me from the Bible what my sin is, you're throwing the ball into Saul's hands, as it were. Now, if Saul says, well, I'm not going to forgive you. I don't care about Christ's sacrifice. He's not going to look very good in the eyes of others. He's not going to look very gracious in the eyes of others of others and so it would expose the real Saul for who he was if David had said this one-on-one with Saul Saul probably could have cared less who knows we don't know his heart but um, in front of all of these other witnesses entirely different question now here's the point exposing your sins before God is not a dangerous thing to do it is running into the security of God's grace and forgiveness And the reason for that, Jesus says, hey, these people aren't even really saved if they're unwilling to forgive you. They can't even claim to be saved if they're not willing to give forgiveness when true confession and a plea for forgiveness has been asked. And so whether Saul can legitimately show anything that's a fault in David's life, or I don't think he can, but it doesn't matter. Either way, this is a great place for for David to be running a very effective apologetic. Now, it's more than an apologetic, though. This is the gospel. We need to be living the gospel every day of our lives. Now, David doesn't think he's sinned here, but he's saying, look, if there is sin, I want to deal with it. I'm open to to dealing with that. And so what he does here uh, is he is pressing into our lives that we need to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ even into our conflicts. That should be the first thing on our minds, not the last thing after two hours of debate and argument. We need to be saying, yeah, if there's anything wrong in my life, let's discuss it because I want to please Christ. Okay, verse 19 gives a second if. But if it is the children of men, may they be cursed before the Lord. If it's the Lord who has led you to attack me, well, then there is grace. Let's deal with it. Let's move on. But if God has not authorized your pursuit, if it's men alone who have challenged you to do this, now he's being very generous because he was the only man who had done this, but if it was men who challenged you to do this, may the curse of God rest upon them. Now, what's so powerful about this is that David is in effect pronouncing his curse upon Saul and upon anybody else who continues to pursue him and slander him with a kind of propaganda that's been going uh, around. It's forcing everybody to think through what they're doing rather than blindly following Saul's orders. And it may explain why more and more soldiers defected to David in the upcoming chapters. It's just a, in fact, it says it becomes finally a huge army like the army of God that finally defected uh, into David's ranks. These guys don't want God's curse. 
And so David disarmed Saul by boldly pursuing the only two possible reasons he could think of as to why Saul could legitimately or could in any reason be coming after him. David continues, For they have driven me out this day from sharing in the inheritance of the Lord, saying, Go and serve other gods. Uh, David couldn't worship in a local synagogue. He could no longer go to the temple to bring sacrifices. And when David is going to leave Israel, he has to, in the, the next chapter, he wants all of these soldiers to realize, I'm not leaving because of a lack of commitment to God or a lack of commitment uh, to uh, Israel. No, I'm being forced out of this country against my will by a person whom you've already seen right now has proved to be a liar and a fool. So in reality, they were the ones who were not living by God's grace, and they were responsible for that broken relationship. David is, in effect, showing the inconsistency of what Saul is doing. They are the bad guys trying to drive him away from the grace of God. Then, in verse 20, he appeals to the seriousness of what they're doing in pursuing him. So now, do not let my blood fall to the earth before the face of the Lord. Now, if they succeed in killing him, they need to be thinking about what God thinks of the shedding of innocent blood. Uh, he was again throwing the ball into their lap, and he was saying, you know, if you, if you take away life, you had better be sure God wants you to do it because God will not hold you guiltless for murder just because you're following orders. That's not a good excuse, and I think Genesis 9 is very, very clear on that. Genesis 9 says, whoever sheds man's blood... By man his blood shall be shed, for in the image of God he made man. So he was making it crystal clear. All of you people out there are going to be accountable uh, to God for spilled blood. You're going to be guilty of murder. Now, maybe Saul in his worst moments could have cared less, but David is giving his speech for the benefit of this, the whole army. And this is his apologetic, and again, I think he was very effective in it based on the fact that so many people joined his army in the upcoming chapters. I think this is probably a turning point uh, as rumors of all of this start circulating throughout Israel. David gives one more argument in verse 20. His argument shows not only humility, but it's a subtle argument that Saul has been committing irresponsibly, committing vast resources to an insignificant cause when those resources could really be far better spent fighting against the Philistines. And I think this would have computed, this would have registered in the minds of those soldiers because what have they signed up for? They've signed up to defend the borders of Israel, right? It's sort of like the argument that Ron Paul gives when he says, why are we spending trillions of dollars defending the borders of you know, small third world countries that are no threat to us whatsoever and we're not even defending our own borders. It's a misallocation of resources. And Saul's misallocation of resources was even more disproportionate than the $10 that man wanted to pay Abraham Lincoln to collect two fifty. dollars right? Uh, it, it didn't make any sense. So he's in effect saying, you're paying 3,000 soldiers to hunt a flea? Take a look at verse 20. Second part. For the king of Israel has come out to seek a flea as when one hunts a partridge in the mountains. Now, there is a word play that's kind of fun in the Hebrew. Uh, when Abner yelled out in verse 14, who are you calling out to the king? The word for calling out is the same Hebrew word for partridge. Because in Hebrew, a partridge is a calling bird. Okay, that's, it, they don't have partridge, it's just calling bird. 
And so here he is saying, yeah, I'm calling out, uh, but I'm just a partridge, right? I'm just a flea. What are you uh, sending all of these resources out to hunt against me? I'm not a danger at all. This shows irrational bitterness. This isn't for the safety of the nation. This is a personal vendetta. And I think these words would have registered powerfully with those 3,000 men. Now, David's words are so convincing that perhaps even to David's surprise, Saul repents. At least outwardly he repents. Um, but uh, Saul has been caught as a bold-faced liar. His propaganda has proved to be absolutely false. No one could find any weapons of mass destruction, right? <laughs> and in front of all of these witnesses, it was pretty hard to prove, uh, disprove the truth of what David was just saying. And so here comes Saul's repentance. First of all, he admits that he sinned. Now that's, that's pretty significant. That's more than a lot of pagans will do. Then Saul said, I have sinned. Now, lest you think this was a genuine repentance, keep in mind that even Judas said, I have sinned. In fact, Judas went one step further. He threw the money that he had gained into the temple, and yet it wasn't a genuine uh, repentance. But still, it was a much more far-reaching repentance than Saul gave in chapter 24. But uh, as far as I'm concerned, I think Saul is still trying to maintain some high moral ground by inviting David back into the camp so that when David refuses to come back into the camp, he says, you know, what's wrong with David? There's something suspicious going on there. Here I, in goodwill, have invited him into the camp, and he's not uh, willing to come. You know, something sinister about that. Saul says, return, my son David, for I will harm you no more because my life was precious in your eyes this day. Now, doesn't that sound exactly like what he said in chapter 24? I will harm you no more, okay? And what he had said earlier to David, what he had said earlier to Jonathan. I mean, uh, this uh, is, is just, does not ring true. So Robert Bergen says in his commentary, David, who knew Saul better than Saul knew himself, accepted the king's words for what they were, sincere, deadly lies. Accordingly, David tacitly turned down the invitation to return. There's a big difference between a God-centered repentance where there is restitution, there is a true change of heart, and the hollow repentance that a public leader gives simply because he has no choice because his hands have been caught in the cookie jar and everybody knows it right with this shocking revelation that they've been manipulated by Saul's propaganda these soldiers are probably not too happy with Saul and Saul figured he better put on a good show and almost all of the commentators say this was a good show that he was putting on because of the later uh, demonstrations his heart really had not been changed at all but it's still humiliating for Saul and very rewarding for David to hear the words in verse 21. Indeed, I have played the fool and erred exceedingly. Like Bill Clinton, he confessed when he was forced by the evidence to confess. And a Christian republic forgives and forgets. And it really is amazing how quickly Americans forgive and they move on. We're an incredibly patient uh, nation. And that might be a charitable way of reading why it is that these soldiers continue to work for Saul. A lot of them do defect. But they might have figured, hey, uh, he's confessed. Let's move on. It may be. Well, David is not quite so naive. He doesn't come back into the camp. Take a look at verse 20. Uh, excuse me, 22. 
And David answered and said, Here is the king's spear. Let one of the young men come over and get it. I'm not coming over there. One of your guys can come over here and uh, get this uh, spear. And some of the lily-livered uh, uh, modern evangelicals criticized David for being skeptical of Saul's repentance. Hey, what's wrong, David? He's, he's repented. You need to just take him at his word and come back into the camp. You need to believe him. Uh, what's the matter with David? Well, the problem is that Saul showed no restitution, and true repentance always has restitution. These mushy Christians will be satisfied with a politician's mere rhetoric. Uh, but when it comes to public office, I'm sorry is not enough. Please forgive me is not enough. God wanted Saul to step down from office all the way back in chapter 16, and if he was truly repentant, he would have stepped down from office right here. You see, forgiveness does not mean you can trust a person to public office. Uh, yes, he can be forgiven just like any other person, but as a leader, he is disqualified and still potentially dangerous. And I think we've got to distinguish between the forgiveness and the reconciliation in our private relationships where uh, we live with the judgment of charity and we believe the best about that other person like 1 Corinthians 13 commands us to do. So we've got to distinguish between that in our private personal relationships and the dealings with public officials like elders, judges, congressmen, and presidents. How you handle those sins in the different, in the different relationships is different. Public officers are held to a higher standard, and David has no obligation to trust Saul as king. If he steps down, that's great. There can be forgiveness, and he's not going to be a second-class citizen in the church, but he can't be back in the government because he's disqualified himself. Do you see the distinction there? Amongst believers in the church, it doesn't matter what the sins are. You're not a second-class citizen. You're welcomed, but sins can sometimes disqualify for office. Now, I'm going to try to finish this chapter up quickly here. Uh, verses 23 through 24, David is basically saying that actions speak louder than words, and in the meantime, I'm planning to trust myself to God's providence to pray that God's going to bring about the laws of harvest. Uh, laws of harvest, laws of reaping and sowing, cause and effect. So let's read verses 23 and 24. May the Lord repay every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness, for the Lord delivered you into my hand today, but I would not stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed. And indeed, as your life was valued much this day in my eyes, so let my life be valued much in the eyes of the Lord, and let him deliver me out of all tribulation. Now, this was a fantastic way for David to end his speech, to put questions into the minds of those 3,000 soldiers. You will reap what you sow. And if you continue following blindly after Saul and the way in which he is living, you're going to reap what you sow. So it was a good way to end the whole conversation. But God does one better. For some reason, God put another rare moment of honesty into Saul's mouth, and Saul acknowledged David's right to the throne. It's really amazing. Then Saul said to David, May you be blessed, my son David. You shall both do great things and also still prevail. Now those last words, and also still prevail, shows that David still thinks of David as his enemy. Okay, also still prevail. He's, he's not really uh, been uh, reconciled. But in any case, he unwillingly prepared Israel to realize that David has the right to the throne. 
that uh, there is legitimacy there. And then they parted, never to see each other again. Now, verse 25 goes on to say, So David went on his way, and Saul returned to his place. Now, is there a time to rebuke a fool? Yes. Obviously, uh, well, ordinarily, we should leave them alone. I, would, I, I think we should, we should say that. Leave fools in their foolishness. Don't bother rebuke them. If they reject God's word over and over again, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says, quit throwing pearls before swine. Quit giving the bread of the children to the dogs. They're going to turn on you. They're going to attack you. Jesus made it very clear. You don't do that. But this passage illustrates that there are exceptions to the rules. Proverbs already gave some of those exceptions, and the New Testament does as well. Titus 1 commands elders to be ready to debate fools who are destroying the congregation, he says, whose mouths must be stopped. There are dangerous books out there written by so-called Christians that are undermining and attacking virtually every uh, historic doctrine of the church. It's absolutely amazing. Even I, I was just shocked. I was reading a book recently. Evangelical, dispensational uh, people who say we take the Bible literally who are defending homosexuality and the whole GLBT cause. So there's dangerous Christians out there. They're writing books, and I would just as soon not bother answering these people, but I must, and other Christian leaders must, in order to spare the church because the church is buying into these kinds of ideas. Uh, Luke uh, 21, verse 15, Jesus said that he would give his apostles a mouth and wisdom which all your adversaries will not be able to contradict or resist. So he's saying there's a place for elders to rebuke fools. Acts 18.28 shows that the apostle Paul was engaged in vigorously refuting the Judaizers publicly. Even though they had shown themselves to be fools, he did it for the sake of the elect. Now let me end by reading an article from the Denver Post. It says, like many sheep ranchers in the West, Lexi Fowler has tried just about everything to stop crafty coyotes from killing her sheep. She has used odor sprays, electric fences, and other products. But still, the southern Montana rancher lost scores of lambs, 50 in one year alone. Then she discovered the llama, the aggressive, funny-looking, afraid-of-nothing llama. Llamas don't appear to be afraid of anything, she said. When they see something, they put their head up and walk straight toward it. That is aggressive behavior as far as the coyote is concerned, and they won't have anything to do with that. Coyotes are opportunists, and llamas take that opportunity away. Brothers and sisters, there are going to be times when God is going to call you to be a llama who boldly confronts and rebukes the fools uh, like Saul's, the Saul's of this world. And you're going to do it, of course, for the sake of God's glory. You're going to do it for the sake uh, of the elect, of the sheep. John the Baptist did it. Jesus did it. The apostles did it. It's obviously appropriate to take cautions, just like David took cautions. It's obviously appropriate to be polite and respectful in the way in which you do it. But when you live in dangerous times like David lived in, uh, back then, we've got to look for the opportunities of influencing the 3,000 who are listening to the rebukes of the Saul's. And uh, that's my prayer, that God would turn the tide in our nation, as he did back then. The, the fools may not change, but the 3,000 may. And uh, it's my prayer that God would cause great turning of the tide through the rebukes of the fools, even the fools who are in office, uh, by uh, key leaders that God puts in place. Amen. Thank you, Father, for this, your word, and 
the reminder that your principles of your law are very practically lived out in the histories, either obeyed or disobeyed. And I pray, Father, that we would be those who long to obey your law, to be uh, people who uh, live it out consistently. We know we haven't been totally consistent in our lives, but that is our desire. And so by your grace, I pray that you would transform us and uh, help us, Father, to be lamas who are willing to boldly confront uh, the foolishness of uh, those who are destructive in our culture. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.